Boat Trader is America's largest boating marketplace with over 100,000 boats to choose from. We offer simple, comprehensive solutions for those looking to sell, find, and finance new or used boats. Visit BoatTrader.com to get started. At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. So there's a reason why I started Blood Origins. And that reason is simple. Is that I wanted to convey the truth about hunting. It brings awareness to to non-hunters that it's it's more than just killing animals. How do I start it? Brittany. My name. My name. Is, Does my hair look okay? It's fantastic. My name is Mike Axelrod. Start again. Yeah, I hated it too. <laughs> Braxton, you said something in the car to me. You said that you were living on borrowed time. Hmm. There's a perception around who hunters are, what we're supposed to be, and a a feminist that works for a non-profit that is a hunter that has only eaten wild game for the last 20 years is likely not the thing that people think about when it comes to a hunter. Russell De La Harp is a good friend of Blood Origins and is more than appropriate to be the first outfitter that we are spotlighting in our Outfitter Spotlight series. It's been a tough 2020 and outfitters around the world need their voices heard by as many people as they possibly can. This is our way for you to get to know the heart of outfitters around the world. Russell has been a supporter of Blood Origins from day one, and as a young guide, has chased his passion for bow hunting in Africa and created Backcountry Africa, essentially a spot and stalk operation for bow hunting Africa. The bow hunting fraternity may have written off Africa, but after you listen to Russell, I'm guessing that you are going to want to bow hunt in Africa. Spotting and stalking planes game and dangerous game sounds absolutely incredible. And doing it in the back country of Africa, when you do not know what you're going to come across, sounds exactly what we all should be doing. So welcome, so, Polly. Thanks, mate. Thank you. It goes fine. It goes fine, fine, fine. And uh, we are happy to have you, man. You are number one, numero uno of this phenomenal Outfitter Spotlight series. I feel honored. Feel great. Well, we, we are honored, man. We are honored. And uh, since you're number one, we've never done one of these before. So we're just going to see how it goes. And how about we do this to start with? Why don't you introduce yourself? Um, and where you do your operations, where you typically hunt, and we'll go from there. Sounds good. So for anyone <clears throat> that hasn't uh, come across me before, my name is Russell De La Harp. Everyone calls me Russ, so save yourself the trouble. Um, and yeah, I've been very privileged so far in my short life to have basically grown up, lived, and worked in some of the most amazing African and 
even areas outside of Africa, which has been a, a huge blessing. And a couple of years ago, from very humble beginnings, basically started a bow hunting, bow hunting focus, but not limited to only bow hunting, but largely bow hunting guiding operation. We started first of all in Zimbabwe. So we have two, two hunting areas or concessions in Zimbabwe, one of which is largely plains game focused. And the second one is largely buffalo focused. And then recently reached out to Zambia where we've started doing the same. So in Zambia, we don't have any of our own exclusive access concessions, but we have access to what we think are some of the best areas in the country. And we like, we love taking people to show them these areas and, and spend time with them there. And yeah, that's, uh, that's a long story short, but that's what we do. Um, we love bow hunting. We absolutely love it. All of our, all of us, all of the guides that we work with are just bow hunting nuts, which is really cool. And uh, a bit of a backstory on how we, what made us start, start this was, we were, I, I don't want to say the word disgusted, it's a harsh word, but we were, it, it hurt us that bow hunting was seen largely by the US market as a blind, overwater kind of hunt, which I don't have a problem. None of us have got a problem with it. It's an, it's an amazing thing for the conservation industry and it's from a wildlife management perspective in South Africa, it's worked really well. So, so, so we're all for it, but for us, that's not our thing. So we, we, we basically wanted to show, we want, wanted to and want to keep showing the world that you can bow hunt in Africa on foot and you can bow hunt the same areas that you can with a rifle or the bow. Um, so you're essentially you know, doing a Western bow hunting type adventure, but in Africa. Basically, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's obviously going to be always going to be certain differences, but yeah, that's that's the that's the kind of hunt we're 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 doing, uh, which is super cool. So my my kind of thinking on it is, uh, for any big game hunter that's a rifle hunter, Africa is the pinnacle of of big game hunting. Like everyone that's a big game hunter wants to come to Africa. But a lot of the bow hunting market doesn't seem to see it that way, which is weird. The animals are the same, the areas are the same. It's just the weapon we choose. And I think that's largely because there hasn't been many bow hunting focused operations, especially in Zambia, Zimbabwe, Mozambique, these kind of areas. It's definitely growing, which is awesome, but yeah, it was, it's, it's been an awesome couple of years and yeah, it's been very good. We've Russell, you're, you're, you're lying, man. There's no way that you can spot and stalk bow hunting in Africa because like, how does that even work? That's impossible. I had a dime for every time I've heard that. <laughs> I'd, uh, I'd be doing hunting myself. <laughs> No, it was, and that's, that's what we were told, like even by some of the landowners that we started working with in the beginning. We, uh, it's a funny story, my good buddy, Franco, I'm sure you'll listen to this, will laugh at this. First time we went to what is now our plains, flagship planes game area, and um, it's called Dollar Block. We arrived there and we spoke to the manager and we had the whole plan lined up and he said to us categorically, you will not successfully hunt an animal here on foot with a bow, you have to do it from a blind. And it was just awesome. 
I mean, it doesn't happen every day, but we literally had a zebra in the skinning shed at like 8.30 a.m. on day one, <laughs> which was walk and stalk. Oh, it was just fantastic. So, so explain, yeah, it a little bit, explain it to me a little bit more, because obviously, you know, I understand, you understand that we have to be selective when we hunt, right? You are selective in the animals that you take. And bow hunting requires you to get extremely close to that animal. So isn't it going to be frustrating on your clients that they're not going to be able to take the animal because you're going to say, hey, that's the wrong animal, but we've gotten so close and he's put in all that effort. You know, I guess talk through that a little bit. Yeah, that's a, that's a, it's a difficult dilemma with guiding bow hunts because, as you say, it's, you know, with a rifle hunt, you can spend five days looking for an, the right animal and your chance of being successful on a stalk on it is really high as long as you found that animal. Whereas with a bow, it may take us five or six or maybe even 15 stalks before we can actually close the gap. The one thing we've learned, though, and, uh, and it's we, you know, we're learning every literally every time we set foot in the field, we learn something. But the lone bulls, a lot of the time, are of the correct age class to shoot or to hunt. And we've learned we've learned the hard way not to waste time bow hunting herds of animals, which works in our favor in that dilemma because most of the time we just ignore herds really. So anything that's anything that's more than three or four animals, most of the time, we just ignore them. If we're walking, we'll just walk past them. And even, and it's so tempting because you can have four wildebeest with their heads down, feeding, the wind is perfect. But we've just learned to say, no, we'll just go and find the lone bull. It'll be a lot better, better to store. Russell, um, again, you're, you're lying to us because all we do is, as hunters is we kill everything that we see. I know, yeah, I know. We just whack, whack them and stack them. <laughs> Females, bulls, anything. <clears throat> yeah, that's a. I know exactly what you're referring to. No, it's a, it's, it's a, it's, it's difficult. So, and it's a, you often get as a guide, we get this dilemma because we also want our client to be successful in the field, and, um, yeah, it's a difficult one. You can sometimes we have to make the call whether it's. That's going to be difficult on certain, especially on certain animals that are difficult to judge. So, like sable, for example, is, is a good example. You know, to to get in bow range of a sable bull in a free range area is not easy, depending on the conditions and stuff. So we could, and sometimes they can be difficult to judge from far away. But sometimes you need to stalk them, and then you can get to thirty yards with a guy that's capable of shooting them at seventy yards and say sorry even though we've spent six days bouncing around in the land cruiser looking for him we're gonna have to pack it in but but nice most like 99 percent of the guys we've hunted with so far have just been awesome awesome guys and have been on the same page as us from day one which is fantastic what would you say to someone who is an avid bow hunter here in the states that you, they're now their eyes are open to now this idea of bow hunting Africa, and they want to do it the way that you want to do it, spot and stalk. Is there something? I, I guess you have to put a, a level of realism to what they're going to do and what they're going to experience 
when coming to Africa, right? Not the idea of whacking and stacking, which is no problems. If you want to do that, go to an outfitter that has a blind and you can do it. But with us, that's not something I can promise, right? Yep, for sure. I mean, I would, I would go as far as to say, and I tell this to everyone that comes hunting with us, is the way we're doing it, if you choose to do it like this, especially in some of the bigger, even bigger areas, like some of the Zambian areas in particular, there is, there's actually no guarantee that you'll even harvest an animal. You could come for 10 days, and if you're going to be a purist and do it with a bow, if we get unlucky and we get bad conditions and some other factors play against us, <laughs> it's, going to be, it's going to be tough. But what we've seen is, like, we had a, a guy on a hunt recently. We were there. It was a seven-day hunt, and he, he harvested two animals in seven days, which the, the weird thing is, is for any other worldwide safari, so say you went to, say you went to Asia to hunt an ibex, and say you had two ibex licenses. If you harvested two ibex in seven days with a bow, you'd be like over the moon. Mm-hmm. Anyone would. Yet Africa has this, this stereotype of being, uh, well, I'm going to get this and this and this and this, which is great. And that's, I mean, it's amazing we have the diversity there. But do it on foot with a bow. I mean, we have had some, we've, we've had days where guys have harvested multiple animals in a day. It does happen. But... There's no guarantee that it will happen. Whereas with a, in the right area with a rifle, I would almost say you're, you can almost guarantee certain species with a rifle in, right. in a lot of areas. Uh, whereas with a bow, even something as simple as an impala with a bow on foot can be, I mean, an impala can be one of the more difficult ones to get with a bow. So, and that's like your bog standard <laughs> animal for any hunting here in Africa. And that can be one of the ones we struggle the most for. Yeah. Just yeah. because of they're always in groups and they're bottom of the food chain so they're on tender hooks from before before sunrise till after sundown kind of thing so yeah it's 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 definitely not for everyone you know it's for for someone and again i don't have any issue with it it's it's uh yeah i i don't discriminate against any any other hunter so if someone's goal is to he's only got say 10 days of leave for the year and Maybe he knows he's got a lot of other hunts he wants to do worldwide. He wants to do Asia and US and Australia and New Zealand. And he wants to harvest as many species of a bigger species range as possible and never come back to Africa. We're, we're probably not the guys to come hunt with. Mm. But contradiction to that, if you're, if you're someone, and this is, again, it's obviously this is how I see it is, if I, wanted, if I came to Montana to bow hunt an elk, a, a huge part of that for me would be just being out in the, in the mountains, experiencing the other animals, everything from the bird life to bears to even if it's a bighorn sheep, you, you know, that, that for me is as much, if not even more than the harvesting of the animal. So, I mean, with us, we are going to spend a lot of time on foot covering ground, you know, looking for the right opportunity. But what happens when we do that is we have these encounters with all sorts of other things and we get to see the whole, you get, we get to see the bush and it's completely natural state, which is awesome. You know, we can walk in, I had a couple of weeks ago, complete tunnel vision on a stalk, stalking a pukul 
and we bumped into five elephant bulls at like 30 yards on foot mm-hmm. and had a bit of an ear flap and a, one of those and we went on separate ways. But like that's something that you'll never get hunting in a blind. Um, right. that, but that's yet at least. Um, sure, in, in, a, in a big area, you could have elephant come to the waterhole, which is very cool. Like that's an amazing experience to have. Um, and it could, this, in the areas we hunt, it can be anything from hippos, elephants, crocodiles, lions. And yeah, just get to get out and see bird life and all that stuff. And, and we also, we, we really enjoy showing all of that to guys that hunt with us. You know, we're not just, not just racing around looking for the next thing to stick an arrow or a bullet into. You know, if we see an interesting snake or a funny bird's nest or something, we'll, we'll stop and show that to everyone. Because I think that I, I think that's as much of as much value to someone coming on a trip as it is the animals that they hunt. Yeah, so you're selling an experience, right? You're selling the adventure of that experience in a place that's completely foreign, and it's not just yeah, you're there to hunt, but you're also there to experience, as you said, this new landscape, these new sights, these new sounds, these new smells. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So it's 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 one that a I don't know what, to, what I would call them. Maybe I would call them a naturalist. So say someone is just genuinely interested in the natural world and it, whether it's the animal that they're hunting or a bird. And we, we like to give everyone that, that experience. By and and then the amazing thing with bow hunting is we get those experiences because we're just by nature what we're doing. We're moving really quietly. We're not in a big group of people. We've got the wind right. So we often come across these cool little things happening. That's I get as much of a kick out of that as we as I do watching a once you're watching a hunter stick a kudu bull or something like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wrong, that gets me pretty jacked up too. <laughs> um, uh, I mean, like those hippos we we I, I posted today. I mean, that was just that's a prime example of of that. You know, you're not gonna. That's just something you get from spending time on the ground. Yeah, things like that are really cool. So for someone who is deciding like, okay, I want to go bow hunting in Africa. I want to do it this style. This is a complete newbie to this kind of hunting. You know, what, are they, what do they need? Like, what do they need to prep for? How do they need to prep? Uh, what do they need to bring for this experience? So. So for, uh, for someone that's fairly new, especially to Africa, I would definitely, from our operations perspective, take them to our Plains Game area and them, uh, which is easy to access, um, really good numbers of Plains Game and all your bog standard species, uh, Impala, Warthog, Kudu, Elan, stuff like that. Um, so all your classical, classical African species. The really nice thing with that is we have we kind of have best of both worlds from a bow hunting perspective. So even for a complete newbie, we can put them in a few positions that are not, well, this is almost like contradicting ourselves, but what we'll often do with someone like that, just to get them on the board, is we'll maybe set up a little brush blind, which is literally just a couple of sticks piled together behind a tree 500 yards from a waterhole kind of thing in the dry seat. So that way we get action especially for someone that's new and needs to work through the shot process and, and things like that, because that's going to be the most difficult part for someone that's new to it is 
we may be able to get close, but it's those final moments of getting the yardage, waiting for the animal to be in the right position, getting your bow back and making a clean shot. That kind of situation where you've got the animal coming towards you is often very good. So the nice thing with it is we have best of both worlds. Yeah, but I would think that somebody who would hunt with you, a bow hunter that would hunt with you, wouldn't be technically. And when I, and I might have misconstrued newbie. You know, when I say yeah. newbie, I mean someone who is well-versed in bow hunting, is an accomplished yeah. bow hunter, but is new to Africa. Gotcha, yeah, yeah, gotcha. So in, in, in that case, in terms of preference, though, the number one thing that I've noticed the last couple of years, especially with... Um, foreign hunters, which is most of our most of the guys we guide, is the something that's going to be really hard to practice for and I haven't quite buttoned it down of how to practice for it yet, is the speed at which you this is really focusing now, but the speed at which you get your bow back and aim and hit the trigger. Mm-hmm. Now I don't know if it's like obviously I haven't hunted in the US, so I don't know if maybe if I were to go and by some by hook or by crook guide and elk hunt, maybe I would find the same thing. <laughs> but I think our opportunities in Africa are a lot shorter than they are maybe in the US because we don't hunt, we can't hunt bedded animals here really. There's a few mm-hmm. species that we can bed, but largely because of the terrain, we can't find them bedded because we don't have any height advantage over them other than in a few unique locations. So Cape Buffalo is probably the only one that we would we actually look to find them bedded to stalk them. That's the only one we, we look for to bed before we stalk them. The rest, the rest we need to get feeding. So what you have in that situation, you have an animal that's kind of moving around a fair bit. It's not like a bedded mule deer that's going to be lying down. And, and I know the mule deer is also a quick opportunity that's going to stand up, and that's your five-second window to get a shot. So it's similar to that. Mm-hmm. Um, that's been the biggest one is getting guys. So when the opportunity presents itself, get your bow back, get on target, and get the shot off. The, the nice thing is because of the terrain that we hunt in, um, a lot of our shots are a lot shorter. So and in a lot of areas we hunt, a 75-yard shot isn't even going to be possible because of the cover that we're in. So it's one of those ones where if you can get close, if you can get into bow range, you can normally get really close. So most of our shots are between 20 and 40. That's, I would mm-hmm. say, our most common range for, for our shots, mm-hmm. which on a big, like a kudu or an eland, you know, your, your, your room for error there is quite big. So I think, yeah, to someone, to someone that wants to practice and come out to Africa, I would say practicing getting on target quickly and still getting that nice clean shot off but in a limited amount of time, I think is would be a, a huge help to them. Um, and, what about, and a lot of stuff what about that, bow breaking? Like if someone takes their bow and it breaks or string snaps, and are they taking two bows with them? Like I'm, these are genuine questions from yeah. me. Like what do you do? So, so what a lot of guys do, especially if we're hunting dangerous game as well. So quite, quite often we'll have guys come on a hunt that are hunting buffalo as well as playing the game. They will normally bring a planes game bow and a buffalo bow. Now, what, what the buffalo bow serves as is it serves as a backup for your mm-hmm. planes game bow. Should you have a problem? And then I, myself, and a couple of other of our guides, we literally live with a bow press in our car, in our hunting truck. So we can be in the North Kafui 
you know, the closest bow shop is probably Johannesburg, two and a half thousand kilometers away. But if you come with a if you come with a spare string and you hit your string with a broadhead, we can put your new string on and we can paper tune it and we can get you back to back to the goods. Um, I've been super lucky. A friend of mine owns a bow shop in South Africa and he's he's just been on speed dial and he let me spend some time with him in his shop for a couple of months, a couple of years ago. And I got the crash course on bow tuning and, and things like that. So yeah, we can we can make a plan, which is cool. Um, and we we also take bows with us. So I mean draw lengths and stuff are are always gonna be different, but just by chance on one of my last hunts, the guy's bow was went completely out of tune and it was one of those ones we had a day and a half to hunt and it was going to take us half a day to change the strings and everything. Miraculously had the same draw length as me. Picked up my bow, had a few shots, said feel good and yeah, off you went. An hour later, yeah. <laughs> so we, we, we do prepare for that sort of thing and what we'll do is we'll send out, if someone wants to come with us, we'll basically send out a kit list before on your bow, which always includes spare strings, spare cables. Uh, we have all the stuff like D loops and peep sites, and we, we kind of keep all of that stuff with us. But yeah, for your specific setup. Um, but bringing two bows doesn't hurt, even if you're just on a planes game hunt, because you could even, your bow could just go out of tune and you don't feel like wasting half a day of precious hunting time fiddling with it. You just pick up a second bow and off the races. And then the, the, the most common question is always arrows. Like, what do we do with arrows? Do we go light? Do we go heavy? Mechanicals, fixed blades, all of that stuff. And uh, yeah, we've, we've kind of seen it all and we've experimented a lot of it and it just comes back to decently heavy arrow. And most of the time, a uh, fixed two-blade broadhead is going to cover you for the most situations. Mm -hmm. um, the, the solid construction three blades, like the Ozcut three blade elite, I'm also a huge fan of those. So those work. But I would, and again, I don't have a pro, I don't have a huge problem with them. But it's especially when guys are shooting low poundage and stuff. You're more, you're, you're replaceable blade broadheads. So like a striker or slick tricks, things like that. They're great heads, and we've all hunted with them. But in that situation, African animals aren't. They're their bone density is incredibly tough and where their vital sit is a lot further forward and a lot lower down than an American. So we're flirting with the shoulder blade. We're really flirting with the shoulder blade by aiming where, where, where we're going to tell you to aim. Yeah. Which is why we like everyone to just use a fixed two blade because should you hit that shoulder blade, you're still going to get enough penetration to get through. Yeah, and yeah. The, the crazy thing is, is it's going to be like, I mean, I had it hunting personally the other day. Found a diker, common diker, the second smallest animal we have to pursue on the continent. Mid stalk on the diker, ended up missing it because it strung jumped me. And while I was looking for my arrow, I started stalking a sable. Now, <laughs> like, wow. how can you prepare? Like, stalking, looking for my arrow, look up, crikey, there's a sable feeding. Hundred yards away, you know. If you if you if you go into that mode of right, I'm going to use this light arrow for the small animals and then the heavy arrow for the big animals. Inevitably, you're going to be chopping and changing. So, one one setup for them all, I think, is the way to go. And that strong, solid construction two blades just covers you from most situations. Awesome. Which is all.
and like even ladies shooting low poundage um, or even guys shooting low poundage, we've just, it's been amazing to see the success we've had with, uh, with those kind of setups. We had, a, we had a lady hunting with us recently shooting a 33 pound bow and we were just like, oh, no, this is going to work. And sure enough, she, yeah, she was successful in a bunch of animals, shooting a big solid warthog ball, which arrow almost passed through, and that's shooting 30 pounds. So, wow. Yeah. So, yeah, it's awesome what they can do when you set right. I want to change our conversation a little bit for the last piece um, that talks to consequence, okay? So, obviously, people come to Africa and they want to hunt and they want to kill animals. But there is a consequence to these guys hunting. And that consequence is you and the investment of that money back into conservation, into certain elements and things that happen on the landscape. Can you give me a little bit of idea of some of the things that you do personally uh, in Zambia, in Zim, on your concessions uh, when it comes to wildlife conservation or community development or anything like that? Sure, yeah. So I'll, I'll focus on one of our projects. I mean, in, in, in general, what we do is we plow a huge portion of that hooking fee and those daily rates back to, in essence, the landowner or the leaseholder of that area who will then use most of it to cover his anti-poaching costs. Um, so in essence, we are, we are helping fund anti-poaching on, on these areas. And so to give you a bit of a breakdown of how that works, um, we have an area in Zambia now that we are looking after. So when we hunt there, that's us putting the money straight back into it. We have 12 permanent anti-poaching guys there that are, I mean, Christmas Day, they were out patrolling. So there's no break for those guys. They're absolute legends and heroes of conservation, but they need to be looked after. And and in that area in particular, uh, us as well as the landowner there have been looking after it. Next year will be a decade, and we are yet to sell one single booking there. Wow! Because it's taken us that long to get it to get it going. Um, we, we weren't involved right from the beginning, so the landowner was was involved from the beginning, and we've now come in and, and are helping with that. But yeah, it's been especially for him. Uh, 10 years of anti-poaching and salaries, you know, looking after the guys' families and things like that, which is, which is awesome because that's what we want to do. But it's, it's difficult to do it for that long without getting any form of, any form of reward from it. Um, it looks like next year we'll, we will start there. So for, it's, it's been a long trip, but it's, it's amazing to see. So there, in that area in particular, I, I do a lot of, uh, you can call it wildlife survey stuff. So I spend a lot of time there setting cameras and basically even just covering ground there, just trying to see what we can see because we don't really understand. We don't understand the numbers of animals there, but we know they've come back. So when we first, when I first went there, I spent a week there, and all I saw was one group of impala rams in a week, and you know it was kind of like the the general consensus was, well, it's all gone. You know? mm-hmm. It's this little follow around. Maybe there's the odd to do up in the hills. That's about it. 
and 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 even down to the even down to the animals that we would never even think of hunting. You know, the bird life, squirrels, all those. Yeah, the area, just, the area just seemed void of life. It was like the ecosystem had been broken. Mm-hmm. It was just, and we were our anti-poaching guys were picking up snares, just left, right, and center in that place when they, when they first arrived. It was so that area is fenced by a cattle fence to stop cattle from coming into it. Not to keep the wildlife. It's not to restrict wildlife movements. It's to stop cattle and and nomadic herdsmen coming into cattle. And they were cutting the herdsmen were cutting those fences, and then using the fence for snares inside the inside the area. Um, so that was that was what they were up against. But the the landowner there has just done an absolutely amazing job of getting the community on his side by helping them out of his own pocket with education. He put up a school for them, uh, covered the teachers' salaries as well. So not only is he paying for the anti-poaching scouts, he's also paying the teachers' salaries that live nearby. Um, finished the school for them, pays for all of their school books and stationery every year and things like that. And that, that has got the whole community on, on his and our side in, in that area, which is unbelievable because we've got to a stage now where we have a few incidents a year and they're all they're all from uh coaches that have come from a long way away mm-hmm. so they're not from them people that are in that in the immediate community that are doing mm-hmm. the coaching so what's the wildlife like today it's just been especially the last it's, it obviously takes a long time to get going but the last two years we've just seen an astronomical increase in everything so Kudu numbers have just exploded. We're seeing on trail campics, we're seeing herds of 15, 20 kudu cows with babies. We're seeing bulls. So, so, so what I think is, what I'm pretty sure has happened there is a lot of animals that were outside of that area have, have an amazing ability to sense their, to sense safety. And they've piled in from outside. And, and of course, have bred inside the area as well. But, the safe haven has also attracted so many animals. So impala numbers are through the roof. Kudu numbers have really increased. Uh, Clip Springer, which is a tiny little antelope, has come back. We never used to see Clip Springer there. We're seeing them in good numbers now. Warthog popped up on a trail camera earlier this year. We didn't even put any warthog there. They just came back somehow. Um, but it's taken a long time. It's taken, it's taken a decade. And we're really hoping, if the stars align, uh, this year to reintroduce Eland as a priority um, and hopefully hopefully water buck and cape buffalo in years to come as well. So I mean this is an area that is this is prime prime wildlife habitat that cannot be cannot be used for anything else. It's too dry for agriculture. It's the, there's too much elevation change for agriculture anyway. There's not enough food or water for cattle. So this is what they would call in Zim and Zambia region four kind of habitat. It's only land use as wildlife. Mm-hmm. And fortunately, because of its location, it was really badly affected by the Rhodesian Bush War in the 70s and 80s. So there was a lot of military in that area, which was which was the kind of nail in the coffin for the wildlife there, which is what wiped out elephant, buffalo. The big, I don't think the big cats were wiped out. I think they've just moved off. So yeah, yeah. we do have 
we do have leopard around, like there's leopard sign around, but it's very low numbers now, but they're coming back. Um, and they will come back and they'll come back in due course with conference So yeah, it's amazing to see it. And, and it's amazing, like everything has come back for the bird life. Uh, I just spent a, 10 days there birding in December. It's a really good time of year for, for birding in Southern Africa because of all the migrants that come from Europe. And just the bird life has come back. Uh, all those small antelope species have come back, the squirrels, and it's just, it's come alive again, which is just awesome to see. And it's, again, it's not just, even the fishing in the river uh, has improved because there's now been a, some form of protection there. And, and the best thing about it is it's, the protection hasn't come from a militant style anti-poaching team. Yeah, our guys are well-trained and we, they're really good in the bush and they're doing a great job. But the biggest thing has been getting the community on, on our side and that they can see the bigger picture of getting elephant back in the area and getting buffalo back, and stuff, which is just awesome to, awesome to see and amazing to be a part of. And we have big lofty dreams of seeing lions roaming and things like that. We'll get there. We'll get there one day. Yeah, it's funny. Um, you know, a lot of people think that hunters were just interested in removing wildlife, but it's more often not the case that we're interested in seeing the proliferation of wildlife um, and the production of wildlife go up. And so, you know, hunting in areas like you are and, and reestablishing areas like this is, is all as a result of hunting and hunters. So, um, yeah, it'd be pretty cool to bow hunt that area for the first time, knowing you're one of the first bow hunters ever to be able to take an animal that has been sustainably grown for, you know, 10 years, essentially. Exactly, yeah. Exactly. I mean, to, to put it in perspective, is there's only been one animal ever bow hunted in that area, ever hunted in that area, actually, since we've been there. I shot one impala for the bow two years ago there. <laughs> And that's it. So it's, uh, yeah, the first couple of guys that get in there are like, uh, I'm jealous. <laughs> yeah, it'd be awesome. Well, look, let me, uh, let's wrap this up and, and I'll let you, I've got a couple of last little bit uh, in terms of questions and whatnot, but any final thoughts from your standpoint? All I would, all I would really say is, and this is mainly aimed at the bow hunting fraternity out there, is Definitely look, in, and it doesn't even have to be with us. So don't, don't think it's not a, this is not a marketing plug, but put Africa on your list to come and buy on because you'll be pleasantly, pleasantly surprised what an awesome experience it can be. And, and that goes for the blind hunting in South Africa as well. If that's going to work for you and you're going to have a good time, you will have an absolutely awesome time. African hospitality and... Uh, and good wildlife, it's hard not to, it's hard not to go wrong. And, and yeah, come and explore these places because without, without traveling hunters, you know, these places are in deep, deep trouble. You know, the, the, let's just say that if the hunting industry were to collapse in Africa, the loss of habitat that we would, and that's to me the biggest threat for wildlife in Africa is habitat. Mm -hmm. Poaching, as bad as the poaching is, it can be stopped relatively easily with a good anti-poaching team and funding and these things. Po poaching can be stopped and it can be mitigated at least. Whereas habitat loss, once it's gone, it's gone. So like the big teak forests of the North, the Pui and stuff, 
those get chopped down and turned into firewood. It's going to take centuries for them to come back. Yeah. So we, if we lose hunting and we lose that habitat, we're going to be, yeah, the world will be a worse place for it. So if you want to have a damn good time and you want to really contribute to, to protecting some amazing habitat and look into Africa. Absolutely. Amen to that. Um, yeah. All right. So let's finish off by say, ask, uh, telling people where they can find you. You're, let's start with, um, yeah, let's, let's start with where they can find you. Sweet. So you can find us on social media, Instagram, at Backcountry Africa, Facebook, Backcountry Africa, and then our website is www.backcountryafrica.com. Best time to, to come hunting? Yeah. Best time to come hunting depends on your, depends on your species, kind of what you want to hunt, but the window is May to October. So you've got a good chunk of time there. And the nice thing is over the American summer, so before the American hunting season is a, is a good time. So like the Zim area, May, June is really good. Um, and then Zambia later on is a bit better, September, October. But it's one of those things, some things are better sometimes, some things are worse. So yeah, it's, it's a, that's the window. And any time in that window, we can, have a, we can have a damn good time. Obviously, if you're a little bit afraid of the heat, come in May or June or July, because October, November, it can get really hot. <laughs> well, just to remind everyone, that is winter in Africa. Yeah, May, June, July is our winter. So pack the down, pack the beanies. And yeah, if you come in October, don't bother because you won't need them. Well, Russell, we are certainly appreciative of you. Uh, love the fact that you're wearing a Blood Origin shirt uh, uh, in Africa. And uh, you've been a huge supporter of us. And we're a huge supporter of you. Thank you for being the guinea pig, right? Number one on this Outfitter Spotlight series. And uh, I hope that... Uh, a lot of people check you out, especially the bow hunting fraternity here in America and obviously across the world to, uh, hey, go do it, man. Go check it out. If you want an adventure like the typical bow hunting adventures that you hear of in the West and in Montana and Utah, you can have the same kind of adventure uh, in backwoods Africa. For sure. And thank you, Robbie. Thanks for everything you do for, for us as hunting community. And like this, what you're doing now for us outfitters is, is, a huge, is a huge blessing for us. You know, we can't come to the trade shows and all that. So we really do appreciate it. And we'll continue supporting Bell Origin as long as we can. Yes, sir. That. Enjoyed it, brother. Thanks, Robbie. That was good, eh? Yes, but All right. Well, that's it for today. I appreciate you listening. As always, leave a review, share it with your friends, and most importantly, do what's right to convey the truth around hunting. Oh, that's awesome! Don't miss Thursdays with Saltwater Experience, brought to you by Golden Boat Lifts, every Thursday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.
every once in a while it's fun to go with like just full-blown redneck on these fish. This is like high-tech cane pole fishing right here. From the white sandy beaches to the crystal blue waters, enjoy the best fishing Panama City Beach has to offer during Chase in the Sun. Sundays at 9.30 a.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.